Good morning. Uh, I'm excited to be here this morning to, uh, to, to share some thoughts with you that I've been processing over the last couple of weeks and um, having some conversations about this. We've been in this series, kind of a short series that we're calling It's Personal. And really this uh, series has two uh, intended audiences. One is uh, for your, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, your family, co-workers, circle of friends, neighbors who are not followers of Jesus. So I want to help equip you in your conversations with them. The other audience is for those of you who've been coming for a while, you've been asking your questions, you've been doing your research, you've been doing due diligence, and you've got some obstacles uh, before you kind of jump in with both feet into following Jesus. So those are the two audiences, and most of us fall in one of two, those two. All of us as adults have some obstacles to our faith. And then something comes along and shrinks our obstacles. And God, at that point, moves out of a category, and it gets really, really personal. And my heart's desire through this short series is for those of us who've maybe had questions and obstacles and experiences and hurts and, or pains or just intellectual barriers. If nothing else, I just want you to know that there is a way around those. That adults who become Christians become Christians not because they resolved their issues, not because they got all their questions answered. They become Christians when something happens that makes it personal. And most adults who become Christians do so with their questions. They bring their, que their questions with them into a very personal experience. And in time, some of those questions get answered. Some of them never do. But generally, adults become Christians not because they resolved all that tension, not because they've gotten answers to all their questions, but because something more important comes along and something comes along that makes it really personal. So to illustrate that, where we're, uh, where we're going today, I want to give you a couple of illustrations. So I want to start with a baseball illustration because apparently they're still playing baseball somewhere. So uh, baseball is something we can all relate to as uh, patriotic Americans, correct? Okay, whatever. I ran a, I watched baseball too like 10 years ago. I ran across this article a while ago though, and this is something that I think we can all kind of uh, get our heads around. I'm going to put some, uh, this, I thought it was kind of cool because I like this kind of nerdy stuff. So uh, I want to talk about this for a second. Uh, Robert Adair, who was a Yale or was a Yale a physicist, I think since retired, studied the science behind the big league fastball. And I know there's a lot going on in this graphic, so what I'm going to do actually is I'm going to give you some uh, data one line at a time. So Corey's going to feed that with us. Let's talk about a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. Let's talk about that. So this study was done a few years ago because the average fastball in the Major League Baseball now is 93.4 miles an hour. Um, so, but uh, that means there are still 90-mile-an-hour fastballs. So let's talk about that. It's a nice round number. A 90-mile-an-hour fastball travels 60 feet 6 inches, that's the distance from the rubber on the pitcher's mound to home plate, in 400 milliseconds. Okay? It's a little less than half a second. From the hand of the pitcher to home plate. So among his findings, Professor Adair discovered that half of that flight time, so 200 milliseconds, is spent by the batter trying to find the ball in the air to get the location, to get the movement, to get that image in his brain. So half the time that the ball is in the air, a whopping 200 milliseconds, that batter's trying to decide where is the ball. 
If the batter decides to swing, the brain spends another 100 milliseconds deciding whether to swing the bat high, to swing low, to swing inside or outside, to pull or to slide the where or to swing outside the strike zone. All these decisions going on, another 100 milliseconds is spent figuring out where do I swing. The swing itself takes 150 milliseconds. During the first 50, the batter can stop the swing, but beyond 50 milliseconds, the bat's moving at 70% of its final speed and he can't check a swing anymore. So now we're at 450 milliseconds. Adair on the side just says that a seven millisecond variation causes the batter to either hit a foul ball or miss the ball entirely. So he concludes then from his research, you see the numbers, right? He concludes then from his research alone that hitting a 90 mile an hour big league fastball is humanly impossible, right? You see it? Can't be done. Because look, it, say, it takes 450 milliseconds to do all that stuff. He's only got 400 milliseconds to actually hit the ball. 450 milliseconds to find it, decide where to swing, to swing the bat, to adjust his swing, and already the ball is across the plate by then. So his conclusion then is that no one can hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. But nobody buys that, do they? I bet there's someone in this room who would say, oh, let's talk about this. He's wrong here and here and here, and his calculations, if, that, if you were... That hung up on the science of this, let's get together and have a nerd date, and we'll talk about that. Because <laughs> you might say, well, I don't know where he's wrong. I can't find that. I can't dip into the work of a Yale physics professor. But, you know, like, I'm, I'm not convinced of his research. I can't argue with him, and I can't argue with his research, and I can't argue with his findings, but, and I can't explain his explanation, but I just don't buy his conclusion. Here's the point. I've not only seen a 90-mile-an-hour fastball hit. You probably have, too. I used to watch Nolan Ryan when he pitched at the old Arlington Stadium in Texas when he, when he pitched for the Rangers. He threw 95, 96 miles an hour back before anybody was even close to that. Um, and on the strength of his 95-mile-an-hour fastball, he, he what, threw how many? Seven? Yeah, seven no-hitters. But here's the deal. Didn't throw a no-hitter every day. He didn't throw a a no-hitter for his entire career. Saw Roger Clemens, perhaps you've heard of him, pitch at Fenway Park uh, in his prime at, uh, with the Red Sox. And I saw his opponents hit his fastball. Today, the average fastball is 93.4 miles an hour. So when you move from 90 to 95, if you think 90 is impossible, 95 is almost like just putting on a blindfold and standing at the plate and just swinging away. The odds of any of us hitting that ball are about the same. It's impossible. And yet none of us buy that, that technically and scientifically, that it's impossible. Why? Because we're smart enough not to opt for the unexplainable over the undeniable. Hitting a 90 mile an hour or 95 mile an hour or 99 mile an hour fastball is unexplainable, but it's not undeniable because we see it happen all the time. And not just by one guy who's like some kind of freak, but by a whole bunch of guys hitting all kinds of different fastballs at all sorts of locations on and off the plate with all kinds of movement and spin on the ball. So again, in this realm of life, we're smart enough to know that you're not I'm not going to opt for the unexplainable because of what's undeniable. So here's the deal. In every area of our lives, we do this. Just about every area of our life, we opt for the undeniable over the unexplainable. I mean, in science class, they talk about the wing of an airplane and how the air lifts the wing. And you probably got an A on that test, but let's be honest, you still don't really understand it. 
all right? I've never walked down the jetway and stopped at the door and said, I'm not getting on this thing until I fully understand it. Why? Because first of all, I want to go where I want to go. I don't need to understand it, but it's undeniable. It works. It happens all the time. And for instance, I grabbed these screenshots just a little while ago. If you want to see, this is, a, this is air traffic over the state of Maine right now. Okay, see the state of Maine there? So that's right now. But you want to you see something even more undeniable? This is the continental United States. I, um, yeah, I know, right? I... Um, yeah, so I, I one time thought a, a career in air traffic control would be a whole lot of fun. But. So it, it's unexplainable to me. I don't care how many, I don't know how many, care how many science lessons you give me. It's unexplainable, but it's certainly not undeniable. Um, or it is undeniable, excuse me. Here, oh, here's something else. This one, this one gets me. First time I clipped on one of these, this microphone. You're like, I didn't know you were wearing that. I know, it's pretty cool, right? Um, I didn't say, no, I don't want to put that on my, that piece of plastic on my shirt. I'm going to look like an idiot. Why am I going to do that? Well, first, the first time I put it on was on my tie, I'm sure, but, or on my vest, on my three-piece suit. But I'm not putting that on with a wire come out under my shirt, tucked into my belt and all that, and make a fool out of myself. Like, look at me, I got a piece of plastic on my shirt. I'm not going to do that. Plus, I didn't know what to do with my tie clip and how that fit and all that. So uh, I'm just not, I'm not putting it on because I don't know that's going to work. No, the first time I put one on, I just put it on, because I'd seen them work before. I'm not even interested in an explanation, because I know you're probably sitting there thinking, well, I can explain it, I can explain it. And then what they do to explain is they pull out a schematic that looks like that. That's uh, really helpful. Like, oh, now I understand. Sure, of course, yeah. We'll pretend that's my microphone right there. That's me right there. And you can see exactly, oh, perfect. I understand now why the human ears hear that. Great. Here's what happens. The microphone converts the pressure from the sound wave into electrical voltage when the diaphragm inside this microphone reacts to the changing sound waves. And the movement of the coil produces a magnetic field, which produces an electric, electrical signal, which passes through this small cable that goes down into my shirt, which uh, goes to the transmitter on my belt right here with a little green light on it, and has a little antenna hanging out of it. And it sends a signal from here over to that little, uh, you can see the little uh, antennas over there, to one of those boxes over there, where there it goes from a cable from there to the breakout box behind the keyboard, into, which converts the signal from analog to digital. Then, are you with me so far? I hope you're taking notes. It sends it through another cable to the mixer in the tech room, where it runs through a series of digital switches and gates and compressors and preamplifiers. That's on the schematic. Then through the same cable, I don't understand that, back to the breakout box, through another cable to the amp in the rack back there in the corner, uh, through another cable where the sound is amplified, through another cable to these speakers, out into the room where your ears hear what I'm saying. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I memorized that. I it's like, now I completely understand. It makes perfect sense to me now. Yeah, give me another microphone. I'll put that on too. So even if you've got that, all that memorized, can we be honest? We don't really understand it. Oh, and what's happening, happening on this belt pack? This signal's going out. With this belt pack, a different thing is happening. This one's a transmitter. This one's a receiver. Because what's happening here on this one, you ready for this one? Different signal coming from the mixer, through the tech room, through the onstage mixer, through the transmitter, through this belt pack receiver into a set of earbuds. Also, I can hear Garth's angelic voice in my ear. That's what. That's what these are about, okay? Yep, thank you. One, 
belt pack is receiving a signal. Uh, the other belt pack is sending a signal. And I don't really care how much and in what kind of scientific terms you explain it all to me. I don't understand any of it. And yet every Sunday when I get dressed, I make sure to wear a belt because I need to wear two belt packs. It's just routine for me to the point where I've been known to forget that I have them on and to realize well, after church and I'm sitting down at a restaurant and that I'm still wearing a microphone and I still have earbuds hanging down my back. That's not awkward at all. But I don't understand it but I accept it and I embrace this mysterious technology. Now, went to great lengths there. My point this morning is in no way to discredit the importance of your questions. It's in no way to discredit the questions of your yet to follow Jesus friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. Here's what I want you to hear today. There is an avenue to God. There is a path to God in terms of Christianity specifically, that takes you around your obstacles, not necessarily through them. And that's all I want to do for us today is to just explore this thing and for us to understand that there is a way that adults become Christians without getting all of our questions answered. And as much of an affront as that might seem to your intellect, the truth is we exercise this principle all the time. That's why those examples all through the days and other areas of our lives. We're willing, oftentimes, practically speaking, not to allow the unexplainable to overcast the undeniable. And all I'm saying is this. When it comes to Christianity, most adults become Christians because something happens that makes it so personal that the reality of Christianity becomes so undeniable that they're willing to carry with them into that relationship with their Heavenly Father some things that they would admit are absolutely unexplainable. So here's the other side of the equation. So many adults who become Christians with their questions, with their observations, with their obstacles, they would say that over time, many of the unexplainable things don't remain unexplainable. So today I want to take you to what I think is the funniest story in the New Testament. I know you don't think of the Bible as a funny book, uh, but this is pretty funny, and this is a story, I think it's funny anyway, but maybe it's just me. We'll see. Uh, This is a story that, I imagine it's just so crazy. I think maybe Jesus and his disciples would gather around the campfire and like reminiscing like, hey, you guys remember, you remember that, that guy and then all the, yeah, you remember that? And they just laugh about this story. It's just so absurd. And what it does is this story illustrates what happens. And I'm, I'm really not pointing fingers because all of us have been here. It illustrates what happens when a person says, I'm not, I'm not going to allow the undeniable uh, to... Uh, I'm not going to allow the unexplainable to guide me here. I'm not going to stay stuck here. I'm not going to just ignore this. I'm going to continue to opt for To be in a place where I will not move and I will not admit what needs to be admitted until I fully understand it, uh, let's just be honest about our, our, our habit, our way of approaching life and other areas of our lives where that's exactly what we do. So we're all in the same boat. Let me read this story. It's probably become clear as we go. John chapter 9. I'm going to read the story and comment along the way. I'll write. So I've already told Corey, best of luck keeping up with wherever I'm going today. So John chapter 9, verse 1. Um, let's read this story. As he, that's Jesus, as he went along, he saw a, bl- a man uh, blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Because the thought was, if you had something bad in your life, and we think, well, this is kind of crazy theology, but this is how, this is a common accepted understanding of God in this time. That if you had something bad in your life, it's because of your sin or the sin of your parents. So part of Jesus' mission in coming here was to clarify what God was really like. So here are some misinformed people, and they had an equation, okay? Either he sinned or his parents sinned because somebody sinned because this man was born blind. So Jesus jumps in, verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. So that's a wrong question, which I think when we get to heaven, we got lots of questions, right? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, you know, so what is it, Republican or Democrat? You know, help us out. We've got all these either or things that we get all tangled up with. And when we get to heaven, we're going to realize that we're just asking the wrong questions. So Jesus says, you're not even asking the right question. Listen to what he said. But this happened, this man being blind, so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. This is hard to swallow. So Jesus, what you're saying is that this guy spent his whole life blind because God wants to make a point? Yep. Well, Jesus, I'm not really comfortable with that. So he's not blind because he sinned, because he's, and he's not blind because his parents sinned. He's blind because God wants to make a point. And then we realize this thing isn't really about our comfort at all. And Jesus uh, does what he often does. He kind of just goes on in teaching mode and loses them. Verse 4, as long as it is day, he says, we must do the work of him who sent me. And they're going, okay, weren't we just talking about a blind guy? Like, uh, what you do this to us all the time, Jesus, what is happening? As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And he makes one of the boldest statements he ever made. Verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Let me explain what he's saying. He's saying, look, till I got here, there was confusion about God. And so I'm here to clear up this confusion. So guys, you need to be writing this down, okay? Matthew, hope you're writing this down. John, you're taking good notes on this because I'm leaving. And when I, when I leave, it's going to get dark again. And just so, you know, just as there was confusion about God before I got here, I'm here to clear it up. But in time, after I leave, confusion about God's going to come back around. So guys, pay attention. Here's why this is really important. If Jesus wasn't some raving lunatic, or at the very least, some, just some really, really extremely arrogant guy, if in fact he was the son of God and could make a statement like this, this is why you need to read the Bible. This is why you need to read the New Testament. This is why you need to read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, because the closest you will ever get to understanding God is found in the words and the actions of Jesus, because he came as a light to reveal what God is really like. This is why so often people with all kinds of questions, all kinds of issues that are unexplainable, they will begin reading the Gospels. And in fact, some people, people that I know, have gone to read the Gospels in an attempt to prove them wrong. But the more that they are exposed to the teachings and the life of Jesus, it's like he is the light of the world. He is who he said he is. He is the Son of God. Something personal happens. So Jesus says, I'm here to explain what God is like. Pay attention. I'm not going to be here for long. So while they're trying to figure all this out, verse 6, after saying this, speaking of baseball, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, which is just gross, put on, and put it on the man's eyes. Pause and think about that for a minute. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. And all of a sudden, a man who's never been able to see his whole life can see. 
And as you can imagine, the story picks up some steam right here. Verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man he used to sit and beg? Because all of a sudden, they see him walking down the street unassisted, and he can see, and it's like, what is going on here? Verse 9. Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. Why did they say that? Because this doesn't make any sense. This is the guy they'd seen for years begging, and all of a sudden, we see him, and this can't be the same guy. There's no way to explain this. But he himself insisted, I am the man. I am the guy formerly known as the blind beggar. I am the man. I'm the one you've seen begging. Verse 10. How then, they said, were your eyes open? We want an explanation, which is a fair question. I'd love to hear that story, too, if something I saw something like that happen. Verse 11. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud. <laughs> How do you make the mud? Never mind. Put it on my eyes, told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. No, 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 no. You don't understand the question. What else you got? Because that's not an explanation. That doesn't help us. Well, that, that's it. That's exactly what happened. Then they ask a really stupid question. Verse 12. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. I didn't see where he went. I added that myself. I just added that. Where is he? I don't know. I don't even know what he looks like. I couldn't see where he went. Verse 13. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Because that's what you were supposed to do when there was a miracle. You had to go to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were assigned to figure out who the Messiah was. And these would be signs that only the Messiah could perform. So they took him to the Pharisees, this man who'd been blind. Verse 14. The day in which Jesus had made the mud, oh, here's the twist, and opened the man's eyes, add some ominous music, was a Sabbath. Oh, Jesus, you, oh, you know better than that. Come on now. You, you know you're not supposed to, you're a rabbi. You know you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. This is a big deal, okay? Like, you know it's a big deal. It's one of the big ten, right? Verse 15, therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. <sighs> he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. What more do you need to know? Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, at this point, the story just spirals into the most absurd dialogue you've ever heard. But here's why this is so relevant for you and for me. See, all of us have a God box. We have a God box that says, here's how God works. So here's how I pray. Maybe you have a God box that says, here's how God ought to work. And since he doesn't work the way I think he ought to work, there is no God. Or maybe God may work that way for you. He doesn't work that way for me. So I've got some issues with God. I just don't believe. But we all have a God box. The Pharisees had a God box. And their God box, here's what he looks like. Here's what he does. God would never, ever, 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 ever do a miracle on the Sabbath. And since that what, that's what we're predisposed to believe, since that's our worldview, since that's how we approach God, then it's unexplainable how this man could be healed by God because God wouldn't do anything like that on the Sabbath. That's their issue. Verse 16. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such miraculous signs? Because you know what, you Pharisees, you may not be able to explain it, but what's undeniable is this man can now see. So what are we going to do with this? The unexplainable or the undeniable? 
So yes, it's unexplainable. How? No, no, it doesn't make sense. I've heard the story three times now. It doesn't make sense. It's unexplainable that it could happen on a Sabbath. It's unexplainable that this guy could, could do it. But what's undeniable is a man who's never seen before can see. So what are we going to do? Which way are we going to go? Verse 16, so they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. <laughs> what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. Now this becomes like a game show, okay? It's like, so like, are you smarter than a Pharisee? Kind of that kind of a thing. This sort of becomes, okay, but what do you say? I know what you said, but what do you mean? He's explained it twice already, and I think he's like, how many times do I have to tell you the story? Because they're, what they're really asking is, tell us the story in a way that fits in our God box. We want a rational explanation. So he looks at them, end of verse 17, and I think maybe with a question, a question mark, the man replied, he's a prophet? I don't know. I told you everything I know. I don't, you don't like my explanation. I don't know how else to explain it. I haven't, you're asking me who he is. I haven't even seen him yet. I don't know. Is he a prophet? Just a guess. Verse 18. They still do not believe that he'd been blind and had received a sight until they sent for the man's parents. Just really interesting that the Pharisees, who most likely walked by this man every day, didn't believe that he had been blind which tells me who they were noticing and who they were ignoring. Just a side note. They don't believe he was blind because this doesn't fit in their view of God. It doesn't make sense the way that they've been brought up and, to, and come to understand God. But here's the deal. You and I have God boxes too. We all do. And the thing I want to challenge all of us on is, uh, are we willing to acknowledge that maybe our worldview and our view of God, maybe it's not quite accurate? If there's a tension within you that says, well, this is undeniable, but I don't understand it, could it be that maybe our view is wrong? Verse 19. Okay, now they're talking to the parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? So now they're asking his parents, how is it that your blind son can see? Explain this in terms we understand because he can't seem to do that. Here's their answer. We know he's our son and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but his parents said this, verse 22, because they were afraid of the Jews who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They'd already made a worldview decision. And you're like, what's the big deal being put out of the synagogue? You're like, I'll just go find another one. Didn't work that way. This was to be cut off from cults, from your own society. So if the information of the facts didn't fit in within their worldview, they didn't really care at this point. It was an open and shut case on Jesus. And any explanation that included Jesus was not an acceptable answer to the Pharisees. Any explanation that would include working on the Sabbath, not an acceptable explanation to them. They said, we want to know how this happened, but you've got to define it in terms that we've already established. So could it be that there are things that just don't fit in your God box, and yet they are undeniably true? Could it be that your Heavenly Father would like to pry open your little God box and show you how much bigger and how much more present and how much more personal He is? And this doesn't discount the importance of your questions. It's a fair question, how did this happen? But when the person 
it happens to gives the explanation. At some point, you've got to decide, am I going to go with the explanation or am I going to discount the explanation because it doesn't fit in my view of God? Verse 23. That was why his parents said he's of age. Ask him a second time. They summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man's a sinner. So this is your last chance. We're going to ask you one more time, how did this happen? Get back in the box. Give glory to God. Quit giving credit to Jesus because we know he's a sinner. He does stuff. He works like does like miracles and stuff on the Sabbath. Verse 25, he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This is why I'm certain. This is why I'm certain of what's undeniable. I was blind, but now I see. You may not like my explanation, but hey guys, I've been through quite an inquisition here now. Could we maybe have a small party over the fact that I have been blind my whole life and now I can see? I thought maybe we'd have some friends together. Maybe we'd uh, have some cake. I don't know. Maybe decorate it because I could see it. That'd be really cool. I never had a party with friends before. Can we have a little celebration here? Or are we going to spend the whole day focused on the idea that my explanation doesn't fit into your God box? I was blind, but now I see. You're the religious leaders. You should be the ones going, only God could do this. So maybe God as he exists isn't the God you've taught us that he is. Verse 26, and they asked him, <laughs> what did he do to you? <laughs> ha. I think these are two different questions. How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered, told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Here's a jab. Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> Getting a little pretty brazen now. Verse 28, they hurled insults at him. This is the best day of his life, think about this. He's been made fun of his whole life. He's, he's heard people talk about him his whole life. He's been on the margins his whole life. This is the day that all of that should change. And the religious leaders hurl insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. Whoa, whoa, time out, guys, 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 guys. Wait, stop. How do you know that? I mean, where were you? Were you there? 800 years ago when God spoke to Moses. You're so confident that God spoke to Moses, but the only reason you believe that God spoke to Moses because your mama told you and her mama told her and her mama told her. Admit it. You believe God spoke to Moses by faith. So why can't you acknowledge that what's happening right here in your presence is God? That God has done something extraordinary. Why are you so stubborn? Why won't your pride acknowledge, all right, maybe we've been wrong about some things? So we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. I'm like, yes, you do. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. You don't know where he comes from? I mean, isn't it obvious where he comes from? Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. By the way, bad theology, but that's what he'd been taught. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. <laughs> to this they replied, <laughs> this back and forth is something else. You were steeped in sin at birth. <laughs> I dare you just haul off with that at, when you really ticked at somebody someday. Just, just give it to them. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So they threw him out of the synagogue. 
He could no longer participate in temple sacrifice. He could no longer have atonement for his sin. He couldn't get certain jobs because now he could work. He, could, he was ser- considered ceremonially unclean, which was a big deal. He would be considered like a Gentile for the rest of his life. And this happened the day that Jesus gave him his sight. Verse 35. Jesus heard. I love how word always got around to Jesus. I, I, I like to know how that worked for him because I think I know and I think it's kind of cool. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the text doesn't tell us this, but, but you, you know that he recognized that voice. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Because I'm thinking you're the guy that put mud on my eyes, and I'm thinking whatever you say, I'm with you. You don't have to explain anything. I'll stand on one foot. I'll spin around three times. You just tell me what you want. I'm with you. Anything, anybody who can spit on the ground, put mud on my eyes, and now I can see, I don't care who you are, what you say, I'm in, I believe. Verse 37, Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And you would have too. And Jesus takes a little teaching moment. Verse 39, for judgment I've come into this world so that the the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you're blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. End of story, mic drop. (laughs) Every once in a while somebody asks me, Todd, do you ever doubt? Do you ever doubt some of this stuff? I'm just going to answer that for you. Yes, of course. Let me tell you when I doubt. Because I've learned this about me. I doubt when I focus on what's unexplainable and I lose sight of what's undeniable. That's when I doubt. I begin to doubt when I forget what God has done and I begin to focus on the things I can't seem to get him to do. I begin to doubt when I lose sight of the things that I've experienced and seen and heard and read about and know without a doubt that God's done. And I begin to doubt when I say, God, you're not acting like I think you ought to act. Back in the God box, come on, like we know how this works. And, don't, and you know, I don't say that in a prayer to him, but you know, I'm kind of thinking it. But I certainly live my life that way sometimes. You know, God, if I were you, isn't that, isn't that how we pray sometimes? God, if I were you, and then fill in the blank. If I were you, you know, this is what I would do. You're not in the Todd box. Get back in the Todd box. This is how God should act. So yeah, my doubt rises when I begin to become so fixated on the unexplainable because of something I hear or something I see or a story that you tell me and I lose sight of the undeniable. But you know what? I'm just like, we're, I'm just like you. We're all, we're all in this thing together where we tend, uh, in other areas of our lives, we tend to make decisions uh, here, not here, okay? So in other areas of our lives, we don't need it fully explained. You probably watched the ball game last night, saw some batters hit a fastball. I don't know how that works, so I opt for the undeniable. All these things that are so perplexing to us, there is an explanation, it's just oftentimes I don't know what it is. And I think the thing that God does in the heart of an adult 
through an experience or through a moment in time or through an interaction or something maybe that you read or a relational pursuit or whatever it might be. At some point, God brings us to the point where we understand this principle and we apply it in our spiritual lives what we apply in every other area of our lives. Because here's what I know what's undeniable. The 2,000 years ago, this guy shows up in Palestine. He's a carpenter's son and he has this totally irrelevant message. The message is love God, love your neighbor, Pray for those who persecute you. It's like, I don't think so. The message is, if somebody asks you to go a mile, go two miles. The message is, turn the other cheek. <laughs> you can't run a society like that. Come on. And on top of that, he makes these outlandish claims. I am the light of the world. So first of all, let's ask Jesus. Hey, Jesus, where have you been anyway? Because you've been like 25 miles from home. So how can you be the light of the world? You don't even know what's out there in the world. You've never even been outside of this like county, okay? I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, crazy people say stuff like that. And he said these things and he taught an irrelevant message and he, we should have never heard the name of Jesus, really. That message never should have made it out of first century Palestine, but he did something else. He said, I will die and I will rise again. And hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses said, we are witnesses to these things and then they gave their lives, not for what they said they believed, but for what they said they saw. A dead man rising. And today, 2,000 years later, and every continent in the earth, in languages we've never heard of, there are men and women who would tell you a story about how they had a personal interaction with God through Jesus Christ. And their stories would sound like freakishly similar to the stories that we've heard. There must be like some website that we all go to to get talking points so that we all tell the same story. This is how to talk about your Christian experience, you know? So we can create a story that all kind of sounds... No, no, no. What's undeniable is that what we've, when we've, we've heard people tell their stories, people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of cultures with all kinds of stories, and the stories are like the same about something that happened personally. Sometimes it's tragedy, sometimes it's an intellectual pursuit, but what's undeniable is that all over this world for a couple thousand years, people have embraced God as their Heavenly Father because Jesus invited us to. And they embraced Jesus as their personal Savior because that's who He said He was, and their lives have been totally, radically transformed. You know what else is undeniable? That there's a... There's a hole, there's a void in our lives, in our heart, if you will, that people and things cannot fill. And every time we explore what might be outside of what we can touch and see, we tend to get all hung up right here. Because it's a category, it's a religion, it's church. It's God in the box. It's who's right and who do they know and how do they know and what about all the other things and what about all those religions and... But as convinced as you might come away from that, uh, that there's, there's nothing to it, there's still a void. Because when God looked down on this earth and he saw our sin, he didn't decide to have a Q&A in, 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 or post you know, some frequently asked questions on his website and give out some information and explanations. Instead, he decided to do the most personal thing he could. He sent his son into this world to show us what he's like. And to take our two biggest problems and take care of that, sin and death. And he said, I'm going to take care of those. And if people come to me, they're coming on my terms. And my terms aren't intellectual. My terms aren't about performance. My terms are not categorical. My terms are personal. 
So at some point in your life, as you're dealing with all this, and I'm not here to really convince you to try to persuade you, uh, this is just me talking. All I want for you today is to, to let you know that there is an avenue, there's a path by which you can pack up all your questions, all your obstacles, put them in your pocket, and you can become a follower of Jesus if you'll simply opt for what is undeniable and not live in the shadow of what is unexplainable. And if we listen to all that and we still got our feet on the brake, that's okay. Here's what I'd ask you to do. Here's what I've been asking you to do each week of this series. Would you just continue to pray this simple prayer? God, if you're able to be known, God, Heavenly Father, I want to know you more than I want to know answers to all of my questions. God, if you're to be known, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to all my questions. I want some answers to my questions, but if there's a way that I can know my Heavenly Father, and if Jesus is really your Son, then honestly, God, I want to know you more than I want explanations to the questions I can't answer. And what you do by praying that is you shift the focus from something that is categorical to something that is personal. And maybe, maybe, maybe that's the on-ramp to knowing God on his terms. I think there are probably others of you here who, uh, let's be honest, you've heard enough. You've heard enough sermons, you've read enough books, you've read enough of the Bible, and you know what? You know there's something undeniable and you still have some questions and you still have some things that you can't explain, but you've heard enough. Today, I want to give you an opportunity just to challenge you to cross the line of faith and to say, Heavenly Father, I, I just, I just, I get to call you that because Jesus invited us to, so that's pretty cool. Heavenly Father, I believe that you sent your son into the world, not just to be a, a savior, but to be my savior. I believe that when he died on the cross, he died for my sin. And I believe that if I place my trust in you, that you'll accept me as your son, as your daughter. So some of you know enough and you believe enough to make that decision to become a follower of Jesus. So today, I want to give you an opportunity to do just that. So let's bow our heads together, and I want to lead you through a prayer. And this prayer doesn't make you a Christian. This prayer is just a way of expressing faith that's been born in your heart as you've listened, as you've explored, as you have pursued God's truth. Just simply say something like this in the quietness of your own heart. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing me to call you Heavenly Father. Thank you for sending your son into this world to be my savior. In this moment, I accept that Jesus' death paid for my sin. And I believe that he came to be my personal savior. Receive me into your family, not because of anything I've done, not even because of this prayer, but because you've made the offer and I accept it. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to this. I'm done with